Welcome to Carry the Lantern, stories of life, loss, light, and love. Today's guest is film and event producer Tanya Selvaratnam. Her new book, Assume Nothing, chronicles her abusive relationship with a powerful man. Her deeply intimate story is helping other victims of intimate partner violence. Writing it has helped Tanya regain her personal power. Tanya Selvaratnam, you're a successful producer of live events, films, art events, and have often worked with social justice groups and for women's empowerment. How did you meet former New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, and how were you treated in the beginning? We met in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. When he first introduced himself to me, it felt too good to be true. Uh, he was kind and complimentary. He was curious. We found that we had many common interests. We both had studied Chinese and we both were interested in meditation and spirituality. And I was very impressed that a politician meditated. And after a few weeks of you know, correspondence, um, we began a relationship and it started out beautifully, but then gradually the darkness started to seep in. Now he had made a reputation as a champion for women's rights in New York, which is also your passion. So was it difficult at first to recognize things that were not cool about him or how he was treating you? When the signs of an abusive relationship started to occur, they happened in the flash of an eye, they happened briefly, and they were shocking because as you said, he was known as an advocate for women's rights he was a progressive hero. He championed many of the causes that I believed in for immigrant rights, for LGBTQ rights. And uh, I didn't know how to reconcile what he was doing to me with the public face that he presented. When did you first start to notice things? I know in your book, you wrote that he privately put down his exes and paid little attention to your female friends who are very accomplished, intelligent women. Did you recognize this dissonance at first? I recognized that he was belittling of me and my friends, but because those were accompanied also by the times in which he was completely adoring, and supportive, I, it took me a while to recognize that what I was experiencing was classic abuse and coercive control. And it took me a while to open up to my friends about what I was experiencing. But then when I did, I realized that I had to get out. There's a lot of controlling behaviors. He didn't want to stay at your place. He wanted you to stay at his place you tried to set up a workspace for yourself and then he was upset about that. Were there other ways in which he tried to control either your looks, your diet, anything about you? There were many ways in which he was controlling me. For example, when I would be speaking on the phone, 
in a separate room in his apartment, he would open the door and uh, act as if I were an imposition and try to get me to end the phone call, even if I was on the phone with my mother. He wanted me to dress a certain way. He wanted me to do my hair a certain way. He wanted me to uh, either have it tied up or blown straight. There were more insidious ways in which he tried to control me. Uh, he wanted me to get plastic surgery to remove the scars that I have on my torso from cancer surgery. He wanted me to get a boob job. He didn't want me to eat meat in his presence. I completely respected the fact that he didn't eat meat, but that he was trying to control myself, a woman in her 40s, about the way she dressed, the way she ate, and the way she interacted with people, these were classic signs of coercive control and abuse. Now, this must have been very confusing because it started out with him treating you well. Was he still treating you well in public? In public, he, you know, we presented as a happy couple. Uh, but there were, there were times when my friends noticed that there was something wrong. I would find out later after I was out of the relationship that they would confide in their partners or in other friends, something's wrong with Tanya or that she's not herself. But uh, as is often the case, they were hesitant to express their concerns with me directly. But then when I started opening up to them, they shared with me how they felt. The first time he slapped you, did you recognize it as abuse or was it confusing? It was shocking and it was confusing. No man had ever slapped me before. I didn't know what to make of it. When I would protest, when I would tell him to stop, when I would tell him that it hurts, when I would jump out of bed, he made me feel like I wasn't adventurous enough and that I was depriving him of his needs. And this was not consensual on your part on any level. You made that clear for him? An important component of consent is that it is requested and obtained. And he never asked for my consent. He would slap me out of nowhere. And I would find out later when I would hear from other previous victims of Eric Schneiderman from his previous girlfriends, that they had experienced the same type of abuse, eerily similar abuse, and that he would slap them out of nowhere. You wrote that you compartmentalized his behavior because you bought into the notion of us and the possibilities of what you could accomplish together for social justice. Is that part of the reason that you did not leave sooner? I didn't leave sooner because he told me that he was going to get help, that he was depressed, there was a lot of pressure on him, and I wanted to support him. I was also hopeful that the adoring and supportive person that he had been at the beginning would come back, and I thought he could change. There must have also been an element of fear because he would make comments like he'd have to kill you if you broke up or that he could tap, have your phone tapped because he was New York State Attorney General. Did that figure into it as well? Definitely. I have many friends who have dated powerful men who still live in mortal fear of them. And I 
did not know what he might do to me if I did leave. And also by the time that I got entangled in the abusive relationship, I was not myself. It was hard to see out the relationship, but I'm grateful for the friends and the domestic violence expert who helped me realize what I was going through, who helped me name it, and who helped me get out. What are the factors that led to your decision? This was the very beginning of the Me Too movement to go public with your story. When I first was out of the relationship, I had no intention of coming forward. I wanted to get on with my life. I wanted to reconnect with my friends. I wanted to throw myself into my work. But about a month after the relationship ended, I found out that in fact, there had been a previous girlfriend who had been abused by him and she had been almost a decade before me. And I thought if there was her and me, then there might be other women also that he had abused. And so I felt a great responsibility that I had to come forward to prevent him from harming other women and also to expose this insidious form of violence. And what was the process of dealing with journalists like for you? Did they make it as easy as possible for you or as stress-free as possible? Or was it difficult all the way through to publishing? There was nothing easy about the process of participating in the investigation, but I also knew that I was in very good hands. When I spoke with David Remnick and shared with him my experience, and then when Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow were assigned to the story, I trusted them implicitly. I could not control the narrative. I had no idea how my story would come out, but I knew that, that they would do the story justice. Can you talk about what the response was, both from people that you knew, from strangers, and what happened with Eric Schneiderman? I had no idea how the story would land, and I had prepared myself for possible scenarios. One was that it wouldn't land well, that he would still be in power, and that I would have to escape. But what was astonishing is that within three hours of the investigation breaking in May 2018, he resigned. And so I felt like I could move forward. Also, I was overwhelmed by the notes of support that I received from friends and strangers. And many of them shared their own stories of intimate violence. And it broke my heart to know how many people had experienced abuse in their own lives. And I feel that by more of us coming forward and by sharing our stories, we can take the shame and stigma out of it and recognize that the abuse doesn't define us and that we have to do as much as we can to chip away at the conditioning that allows this type of abuse. Did writing your book help to get through the PTSD or do you consider it a work in progress? Writing the book was painful. I wrote my way out of the darkness. I emerged from the book stronger than I was before, feeling even more grateful for my friends and colleagues. The PTSD is something I still experience, but I also have more of the tools to be able to recognize it 
And my hope is that the book helps other people heal and also helps them find their light. You know, I take the reader through my journey from a victim to a survivor to a thriver. And that's what I hope for anyone who has experienced intimate violence. Can you mention any modalities that you've used to help you through this? Meditating still, if you're seeing a therapist, like what seemed to be the most helpful for you? There's no one size fits all for people who are dealing with PTSD in my situation. I have an amazing therapist whom I continue to see. I was already meditating daily and over the past few years, I meditate more and more and more. And also just finding moments to experience joy by being with my friends, by experiencing art, that has been crucial for me in just moving past the experience of abuse and moving into a space where I am more comfortable being present in the world. You were independent and were able to maintain your own apartment, which gave you a place to go to easily. Do you have any advice for victims who may be either economically tied to their abuser or have children to deal with? Well, as you mentioned, I was very fortunate that I had my own place to escape to. I had, you know, my job and a network of support. And my heart breaks for people who are stuck in abusive relationships because they don't have the financial resources or the community to support them. But what I would say to anyone in an abusive relationship is there are organizations out there that can help. And it was very important for me in the book to have a list of resources so that anyone reading it can find an organization that they can reach out to to get support. It's so important that we have increased education and awareness and also governmental resources for these organizations because they are doing the hard work to make sure that victims are supported. What would you like to see going forward as far as education for both men and women about this type of violence? Well, we're conditioned to accept violence, bullying, abuse from the time that we're born. We're conditioned to think that if a boy teases us, he likes us. And we have to unravel and outroot that type of conditioning. We have to make peace and kindness more exciting than violence. And that education needs to start happening from a young age before the behaviors become ingrained. And I'd like to see more healthy relationship training. I feel like sex, sex education needs to be transformed so that it incorporates awareness about how we need to treat each other, how we need to treat each other with respect, how we need to deal with consent and have healthier relationships. So I feel like that is where the education needs to begin. Right. I mean, there's no discussion of how to have a conflict and how to get through it peaceably. I 100% agree with that. Have your ambitions as far as your work and the type of projects you'd like to work on changed because of this experience? I have always been involved with amazing organizations and people who advocate for the rights and safety of women and children and of all people. 
dating back to my work on the women's conference in China in 1995, my work for the Ms. Foundation, for the World Health Organization. Now, because of my experience with abuse, because of the book, and because of the community that has formed around the book, I feel even more committed to that work. So yes, I mean, it has changed my work, but it, in a way it's amplified the work that I was already doing. You said the organization that is formed around the book. Can you explain what that is? It's a community of people, the readers of the book, uh, the many organizations that I have done conversations for and that are helping spread the message of the book and giving people the resources in the book to spot, stop, and prevent intimate partner violence in their own lives and in the lives of their loved ones and to encourage bystanders to be upstanders, to support their loved ones who are in abusive relationships. So when I say the community around the book, it's many, many organizations that are involved in that and many, many people. Is there any training available now or advice that you might give for people who might recognize some of these controlling, possessive, bordering on abuse that may be abuse when someone is at home in their space with an abuser. How do you address that with friends? How did your friends address that with you? Friends noticed that there was something going on with me, that I was not myself. But as I mentioned before, they were hesitant to talk with me about it because I wasn't talking about it. But it, eventually it took a friend who asked very tough questions because she knew that I was having a hard time with the relationship. And she asked me a number of questions that elicited answers. And it was when she asked me the question, does he hit you? Her question came out of nowhere. It was like she intuitively knew to ask me that. And I said, yes. And I could feel the rage in her building, but because she knew that she was not equipped to take me from that point forward, she asked if I was willing to speak with a friend of hers who is a domestic violence expert. And I said, yes. And after I spoke with that domestic violence expert, I then had the tools to recognize what I was experiencing. And also she helped me extricate myself from the relationship in as quiet a way as possible. And so what I would say to people out there who might suspect that their friend is in an abusive relationship, to be empathetic and to be sympathetic, to be a good listener, to ask questions that might elicit answers and not to be judgmental, to be supportive and to also have those tools ready like domestic violence organizations to reach out to if your friend does indeed need help. Also, you wrote about having plans, plans of how to extricate your things from his apartment, plans of how to approach your communication with him as you were extricating yourself from the relationship. Well, it's important when one is getting out of an abusive relationship to have a safety plan. And that's where domestic violence organizations and experts are crucial in providing those tools. And although abuse is common, Every victim is unique and a safety plan needs to be customized for the victim. With the domestic violence expert that I connected with, she's the one who really guided me through that process of uh, getting out of the relationship as quietly as possible so that I didn't, as she would put it, poke the bear and make him angry. And she's the one who also told me to not worry about my 
things, my material possessions, which were at his place, there would be a day when I could go and get them. And that when I did, she wanted me to make sure that I had a friend with me and that I went to get my things when he was not at the apartment. And that is what I did about a month after the relationship ended. Extricating yourself, writing the book, was this all a process of beginning to find your own strength and your own power again? Well, I went from extricating myself from the relationship and trying to get on with my life to survival mode because I then was in the process of coming forward and making the story public. After the story became public and he resigned, then I could truly begin to start my healing process. And writing the book was part of that process. I'm grateful that I'm a writer and that I could write out what I experienced and also that I had work. I had to show up for work. And I'm very grateful that my colleagues were supportive by, by giving me that work to do. And the process of healing is ongoing, but I do feel like I am my strongest self ever by having gone through that process. That's wonderful. Were the other women who had been in relationships with him, were they also going through this process of healing once they were able to be either involved with the magazine article or to let you know that they had also experienced the same things? After the New Yorker story came out, I heard from two other victims of Eric Schneiderman. And while those two did not come forward, I was grateful to know that by seeing his abusive behavior exposed, they were then able to get some help for themselves. And since the book has come out, I've heard from two more previous victims of his who read my book and wanted me to know that they had been abused by him as well. And I hope that it provides healing for his previous victims, but you know, no one should have the memories that we have. And Eric Schneiderman is one of many, many perpetrators that need to be exposed so that the victims don't feel like they're alone and that they're crazy because we're not. Right. And finding out that this was a pattern must be very helpful for everyone concerned because you no longer feel like it's you or you brought this upon yourself or there was something about you. Right. I mean, when the abuse first started happening to me, I thought it was specific to me. He made me feel like I was different from his previous girlfriends. You know, abusers are very good at customizing the ways in which they abuse their victims. So in my case, it was my skin, my hair, my dress, what I ate uh, with another previous girlfriend. He would criticize her ankles and tell her to get Botox. But the abuser is also very skilled at making you feel like you are unique and also that they need you and that you will harm them if you leave them. You know, in the book, I wanted to provide the tools for people to recognize the many forms that abuse takes, that it's not only physical, that it is also emotional and verbal and legal and digital so that we can, we can more easily spot the violent behavior and also name it and get help for ourselves. Because so many people are keeping this a secret and suffering silently. Thank you so much for bringing your story into the public view because there's so few people had been doing that with detail. It's just fearless. I think you've done something absolutely amazing that will help 
so many people. I, for one, am really, really amazed at the bravery of women throughout the Me Too movement and going forward with the social justice movement because it's all connected. So I'm really in awe of what you were able to do. And thank you so much, Tanya. Thank you so much. I'm I'm blushing. <laughs> that I was can't very, see it, that, but that, that was very kind. You know, it, it is a collective project to chip away at the cycle of violence. And I am very hopeful that as we move forward, we can begin to heal. Thank you, Tanya, and thanks for listening to Carry the Lantern. Assume Nothing is available in both print and audio and has an excellent resource list for victims of intimate partner violence and their allies. Love, Eleanor.